Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 270, and I had a conversation with Dr. Morin Cerf. He is a neuroscientist, a writer, a philosopher, an adventurer, an explorer, a former white hat hacker, <laughs> aka bank robber on purpose, <laughs> which I think is really fun. Uh, yeah, really an interesting guy, fascinating conversation. Y'all know how much I love neuroscientist conversation. Uh, he is, I think, the third neuroscientist on the show and did not disappoint. Uh, real fun ride con- uh, conversing with him. He has a book called Consumer Neuroscience. He teaches at Kellogg School of Management as well as Northwestern University's Neuroscience Department. He has lectures on TEDx. I post links for all this stuff on Hey Human Podcasts website. I'm just gonna go over it all here, though. He uh, does a column for Business Insider where he takes questions from people asking about brain things, and you can email him for that under insider at moransurf.com, which is M-O-R-A-N-C-E-R-F dot com. The time really flew chatting with him. Um, I probably could have talked about this stuff for hours, and you know, whenever I have somebody on the show like him, I feel like every question begets 12 more questions. <laughs> he was very patient with me. Um, <laughs> at the end, I think he's like, my God, how long have we been talking? But, you know, he was he was very kind to, to let me chew his ear for quite a long time. I'm endlessly fascinated by this topic. In other news, Hadley Canary's single came out, Possession of Pain. She and I wrote that song. It's all over the place. Wherever you get your music, you can find it. I'm really proud of this song. Uh, we wrote it in response to some grief that she was carrying uh, and we worked out all the big feelings as best we could into this song and again super duper proud of it and I hope you like it definitely go check it out Hadley spells her name H-A-D-L-E-Y K-E-N-N-A-R-Y stellar voiced woman Uh, so proud of this song and of her Social media, Hey Human Podcast, can be found on Instagram and Facebook under Hey Human Podcast. You can find my personal social media under uh, Susan Ruthism, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. I want to hear from you. What do you think of the show? Do you have any interesting folks you want me to talk to? Maybe you've got a cool story. Let me know. Uh, I answer every email. So definitely send in your hellos rate and review hey human on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts Uh, i mentioned the links page already but on heyhumanpodcast.com you will find a curated list especially for you of all the stuff that my guests and i talk about from books to articles to their social media stuff websites all that jazz even obscure things that are non sequitur seemingly uh, are on there. So do a deep dive. Check out the links page. You can also go to the merch page, which I think is just called store on the website. You can find Hey Human t-shirts and various bric-a-brac for your enjoyment. It's a great way to support Hey Human, and I appreciate it. So there's that too. Uh, in other news, other news. 
That was some other news. So this would be the third. This is like PPS. Or is it PP? PSS. I think it's PPS. I digress. Uh, I'm going to be recording new music this week. Very excited about that. I'll keep everyone posted. To that end, check out SusanRuth.com if you want to know more about me and all the other things I do. And you can sign up on the mailing list there. And I promise not to harass you with email upon email. I'm lazy and only send them out every so often. But uh, I want you to know about that. Again, if you're into music, Susan Ruth, find it on iTunes, find it on Spotify, find it in all the places. I just did an interview. It was on YouTube and also on all the podcast places with the My Home Vitality podcast. And it was super duper fun. Oh my gosh, I had a blast. They are great. Um, we we went all over the place uh, from football, otherwise known as soccer here in America, <laughs> to brains, to creativity, to uh, music. Um, God, we, we were all over the place. It was a lot of fun. Um, I think we even talked about Bigfoot, come to think of it. <laughs> Anyway, really great guys, Gareth and Sean leading the charge across the pond. And it was my first UK interview for the podcast. So that was very exciting. Uh, definitely check that out. I'll put posts to that on SusanRuth.com. And of course, I'll put it up all over my social media this week for you to check out. So definitely do that. I think that's about it. I have rambled on quite a long time. And so here we go. Thanks for listening. Be kind, be well, and and take care of each other. It's good for the brain. Here we go. Dr. Morin Cerf, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I learned about you through my friend Jeff Madoff, who I believe you're on his, you did his uh, school. You went and talked to his school. Yes, I spoke once in his class. Yeah. So uh, I was going, uh, we met and I was interviewing him for this show and we have since become great friends, but I went through all of his interviews and, and saw you and I was like, wait, I love neuroscience. How come I haven't started reading up on this guy? And so I devoured a bunch of uh, your work and got very excited and even more so that you said yes to being on the show. So welcome. Pleasure. Happily. Yes. So I usually start these uh, with childhood, where people came from, what shaped them uh, in the beginning of themselves. So you were born in Paris, but raised in Israel. Yes. Yeah. My mom was Israeli. My dad is French. My mom moved to Paris to study and live there, met my dad. They quickly got married, quickly had a son. That's me. And I think that when I was still a kid, I think my mom felt that uh, it would be useful for me to grow up in Israel. So the two of them and me moved back to Israel where I went to school and started my, would be 20 years experience of Israel. And then the US since I was 26. Okay. And while you were, while you were growing up, I read that you had a proclivity for art. Yes. Yeah, so I think one of the reasons my mom wanted to go to Israel is that there's one school that she really wanted to kind of have me 
apply to. It's just opened. This was I was in the first cohort of that school, and it was titled the School of Arts. There was only one of those in Israel, and it's a school that kind of goes from 8 a.m. to say. I don't know, 1 p.m. regular school. And then at 1 p.m. to the afternoon, you do arts, which would be music, dancing, ballet, uh, theater, uh, film. There was a lot of like uh, kind of art. And, and so you basically kind of practice a lot of art in the extra hours. And I think my mom felt that this would be really important for my kind of character to do that. And I think it's definitely the case. Most of my friends are still from there. Most of my friends are artists or doing something in the art world. So it definitely shaped how I think about things. And you, your schooling started in philosophy, which I, I feel like that's it. Definitely the connection between art and philosophy is there. I think that so, so now kind of fast forward to when I was 22 and I finished. So in Israel, you go to school, then you spend years in the army, which I did. And then when you finish all of that, you're 22, roughly. And that's when you kind of start asking yourself what I want to do when I grow up. And for me, I had a list of questions that I was interested in. And I was thinking kind of, if I go to college, I want to find the answers to those questions. And the questions were broad, uh, big, unanswerable, uh, but definitely defining of my trajectory. And there were questions like, uh, what is the beginning of time? Uh, are there aliens? Uh, do we have free will? And down the line, I learned that the answers to those questions comes from uh, either physics, neuroscience, or for the most part, philosophy. So that's kind of how I ended up doing all three. Yeah. Did you uh, have a favorite philosopher? I think that still to date, the one that I mostly resonate with is uh, Immanuel Kant. I, I somehow try to put a, a phrase of his or an idea of his in each and every academic paper I write, but no one ever notices that. So I kind of sneak them in without mentioning his name, just kind of quoting something or, or suggesting an idea. And I think to that moment now, it's been 15 years, no one has ever noticed that actually this is a reference to him that kind of I snuck into the paper. Oh, that's interesting. How does, uh, so every Israeli has to be in the military. How does that shape you as a, as a kid, knowing that that's your trajectory as well, especially an artistic child, which not to say that people in the military aren't artistic, but it does seem to have a bit of a juxtaposition. <laughs> so I think that uh, in a way, um, there, even so I'll say the following. First of all, there are some artists who go to the military and still stay artists in the military. They do shows for the military, they entertain soldiers. So there's that. Many of my friends went this path and they're artists in the military. That's one op option. Um, there's another option, which is you kind of separate your lives and you say, this was one part of my life, another part of my life, which is more like what I did. And you still maintain some things that you learned as, I would say, kind of a performer in your work. For instance, I would say that even as a soldier, I was very much theatrical in my teaching. So at some point in my army service, I was asked to train other, other students or other soldiers, kind of incoming students. And I was among the better teachers, not because I was necessarily smarter, it's because I was better in presenting ideas. So something stays with you, even if you're kind of not at all in theater, you know how to present. And that was useful. I think it still is useful in my career. And I guess the third thing is that when you're 18, you don't know yourself much. So 
you kind of go to the army not knowing what to expect. You don't have a fully developed character. So you kind of still figure out who you are at that age. And I think that's why they choose 18 as the age of people go to the army. So you're still malleable and you can still do <laughs> things that, that then, you know, you become 40 and you ask yourself, why did I do that when I was 18? And you say, well, I guess that I didn't really have a sense of what's kind of me at that stage. Yeah, I, I definitely think human beings morph. And, and I always say that reincarnation happens in your actual life. You don't even have to die to have reincarnation because we become so many different people throughout the course of our existence. Definitely true. And I think the army service is definitely, uh, it's an experience that uh, shapes and develops character. Like you kind of, in the US, age 18, you usually go to college and it also shaped your character. It's the first time you live by yourself. It's the first time you meet kind of friends who potentially will stay with you forever. You figure out who you are. Imagine that on uniform, only boys or only girls, um, not living uh, over the weekend or not going home. Uh, there's a lot of things, but it definitely builds a character. And I still think I owe a lot of who I am and how I think about things and how I operate to that experience of three and a half years. It's got to be odd to go from your mother's bosom into, uh, you know, a warrior mentality and, and having that hanging over. I mean, I imagine being 15, 16 and knowing this is looming in the distance. And even though it's, it's over there, I'm hmm. sure it still shapes you in this moment. I think that one of the things that, for instance, is a kind of shaping your upbringing as a 16 year old let's say is that you know some things about the military that will be very much defining but you don't know how they work so i'll give you an example it's known that uh, there are a lot of units in the israeli army and you can be in many of them and some of them kind of require you to have more physical skills some of them require you to have more technical skills like you know fixed things some of them require to have kind of ability to program like there are many many things and you might think oh i will really enjoy doing this one. I'm going to enjoy, say, being a, I don't know, an engineer. And that's your dream. And you kind of work on that. But when you show up to the army on day one, they actually need a, a tank commander. And they say, well, it doesn't matter what you want. We need a tank commander and you're physically fit. You're going to be a tank commander. And in a way, this feeling that kind of what you thought you're going to be might change in an instant choice because there is a need for something and you qualify makes the kind of arbitrary experience of life uh, dominant. So at age 16, you can ask yourself, should I now spend the next two years trying to be the best and a programmer I can be with the hope that I'm going to use that for the next three years as an army intelligence officer? Or will I show up on day one and they just say, well, we know that you're an expert programmer, but we actually need a tank commander and that's what you're going to be in the next three years. So it kind of makes choices in life seem very arbitrary. And this stays with you for the entire time. You kind of say, I'm planning my life and uh, one day choice by one person could determine my next four years. Yeah, and then a stray bullet can also determine your next. <laughs> yes. So yeah, th and then there's th an entire story is a boot camp. Like you actually, you know, show up to the army. Uh, in the morning, you're still wearing civilian clothes. You show up, someone tells you what you're going to do for the next three and a half years. And someone else starts screaming at you and kind of making you do push-ups. And that's part of like, you, you kind of come knowing that that's going to happen. But like, it's very still unique experience at 8 a.m. to be kind of uh, chatting with your friends and at 9 a.m. doing push-ups because some person uh, establishes dominance. And I think that in many ways, 
there are a lot of things that I, I feel today I owe the experience in the army that I didn't think were important uh, back then. So, so definitely, you know, you learn to, to know your body's limits. Right? Mm. Like you, you think in the morning, uh, I will never be able to run a marathon without training for six months. But they tell you, you can run a marathon today. And you just start doing it and you might walk and you might get exhausted and you might be carried uh, by your friends if you can't do it for a few miles and then you carry them. There's a lot of things that happen there. But in a way you say, okay, I guess the, the thinking that I have on what I can and cannot do is inaccurate. I'm going to learn what I can and can do kind of when I actually confront this thing. So that's one thing. The level of bonding that I think every soldier will tell you happens in the military is also unique. Like you kind of rely on other people to do things for your survival. Suddenly, you know, you go to sleep and someone has to guard the base. And if they're sleeping, then you have to guard the base. And and one of you has to be up all the time. So it's kind of like, you know, parents say that they, the first few months of having a kid is kind of like that. You have to constantly manage this thing and you rely on each other and you're dependent on each other. Suddenly you do that with strangers. That's another component that is important. I guess there's also a lot of things that you get in the army that uh, stayed with me. For instance, you, you are sleep deprived for months and you get used to your body's ability to be deprived and still function to me uh, as an adult i can tell you this is a bad idea but as a 18 year old kind of kid i just assume this is what it is and it's in a way shaped my uh, abilities to date so if if there's a deadline in 24 hours i know that in the back of my mind i have the ability to stay up 24 hours and do that and i learned that because i was forced to do that as an 18 year old and now i know there's yeah. many of those. Yeah, I want to put a pin in that and to come back to it because I do, you know, your work with with you telling your brain, your brain telling your brain what it's capable of and not capable of. I suppose that that, that in the beginning of you, you started seeing that firsthand of how that works. Yeah, it's a, it's I mean, it's it's I speak a lot to people right now in extreme positions, either soldiers or a kind of senior CEOs of companies or people in senior positions, or to people in the government who have to make decisions. And in all of those cases, the kind of main learning is that there's more in you than you know. Mm. Uh, when you think you're at 100%, you're usually at 80%. And there's 20% more that's out there. And it's true to a you can, you know, do more push-ups when you think you cannot do them. Uh, you're able to learn things when you think that you kind of, that's it, my memory is done, I can't, I'm fried, I can't do that. You still have a lot in your memory. Uh, it, there's a lot of things there that they, that people learn about themselves when they kind of figure out how their brain to. works. <laughs> Especially. Yeah. I should say right away that I wouldn't recommend uh, maximizing that all the time. So there's, there's, you know, nature gave us the feeling that we're at 100% when we're at 80% so that we won't constantly push our boundaries and hurt ourselves. So you feel that you can't run after, I don't know, 16 miles, not because your uh, body cannot run, but because your brain says, let's stop here so that we won't actually injure ourselves. We can do more, but I'm making you feel pain right now to avoid you kind of taking yourself to a level where it's going to be damaging and while i tell people there's more in you than you know i also tell people you should listen to your brain because there's a reason it tells you to stop and you should be aware of that as well 
Do you think the brain gives false flags then about the pain and, and things like that, that in order to make you stop? Yes. I think, I think the brain has evolved over the you know, 100,000 years since we're in Savannah uh, to do two things, to protect us from pushing ourselves too much and also to align the world around us with kind of the body that we can handle. So the but there are some flaws there. So I'll give you an example of a flaw in our brain that we should be aware of. And I'll give you some uh, things that the brain is doing great for us that's helpful. So the flaw would be uh, when it comes to food, we typically get the feeling that we're full about 20 minutes after we we're actually full. So if you ate slower, uh, you will be able to know that you're full when you're actually full. But because our brain is trying to take more in because we're still with the savannah brain and the savannah brain doesn't really know if we're going to find food tomorrow. So it says it's better that I would take more than I can and get a little bit fat, but there's going to be fat to burn in the next three days. If I don't find food, we're still living with that brain. That is why most of us eat more than we should because we, the last you know, 10 minutes of our eating, uh, we're already full, but we still kind of take more. That's a flaw of our brain. And if we can eat slower or learn to kind of adjust the quantities to what we actually need, we're going to be fitter, we're going to be healthier. So that's using our brain for our benefit. They're also the opposite of that, which is uh, our brain is tricking us to not uh, feel that we're tired when we should be asleep because of devices and uh, TV and computers and so on. Our brain has learned that uh, we could stay up longer without feeling tired. And so we don't go to sleep until we're exhausted or we cannot do it anymore. And we're actually making a mistake there because we need more sleep, but we just don't listen to it. So, you know, we say to ourselves, okay, there's one more email. And if I just write this email, things are going to be much better tomorrow. This is probably not true even. And then we keep ourselves a little bit uh, longer up and we're hurting ourselves. It's not healthy for us. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of us using the brain to give us more hours, but hurting ourselves. Do we even know at this point how the brain understands sleep? Do we, does it? So every time a question comes, do we know XXX brain? The answer probably would be no, because we constantly uh, change everything and so on. But to the extent that I think the audience of this podcast need to know, we're pretty good at that. So we understand kind of what sleep is for, how to do better in sleep. We know what sleep is made of, like the components of sleep, how to know that you're sleeping well, to measure it. So we know a lot of things that are relevant. I bet that in 10 years, we're going to find something that will shift everything upside down and we like, oh my God, sleep actually could be, you know, you can sleep for someone else. So you can transfer sleep from one person to another, or you can, uh, you can sleep only one hemispheric, like keep your brain awake while you half of it sleep. There's a lot of things that, that, that animals can do that we might learn to do ourselves. And this will change a lot of things. Like we might actually say, you know, I'm going to be up for the entire 24 hours, but I'm going to just send half my brain to sleep for 12 of them. So, and then the other half, and in many ways, I'm going to actually sleep 12 hours a night. Just some of me is going to still be able to, I don't know, stay up and talk to my friends. So there are things that, we, that we're probably going to learn, but sleep that will change the making of sleep entirely. But humans will need sleep all the time. Uh, sleep is healthy. Uh, systems turn on only when you sleep and you need them to turn on because they fix your body. That level of how sleep works, we know. God, the brain to me, it, it's, it's, it's a universe unto itself. The idea that we are just now setting out on the journey to figure it out. You know, we've gotten to the moon, maybe a few other planets, maybe, but there's still so far to go is extraordinary. 
you know, there's kind of a, two ways to look at that. One philosophical uh, idea is that when we get to the moon, we actually experience the moon and we walk on it and we sit and so on. And all of those experiences are registered in our brain. So if we knew how to copy them, we could make a person on earth feel exactly like they're on the moon. Virtual reality to the maximum amount. Like we just give you the experience of being on the moon. In that sense, if we can transfer our brains to places, it's as good as it gets. Like when you eat something, the feeling of the taste, the experience, the joy, everything happens in your brain. If you can trick your brain into getting those experiences, you can basically enrich your experiences to full. We don't have to actually land on Mars to experience Mars. If we can take the smell of Mars, the taste of Mars, the, the cold or warm temperature of Mars, everything else, and make your brain feel that it's on Mars, the ultimate VR, then you are on Mars. It doesn't really need to physically be there to experience it. And that sense, our brain is all we experience the world with. That's can't for you. Like all, all that is out there is what our brain experiences. So in that sense, we can do a lot more with our brain in giving us things without the need to actually go there. And on the more simplistic and kind of a nice one, I think the brain is also a lot more complex than we know. And in many ways, as we explore the universe and we learn a lot about the wide reaches of the unknown, we just begin to understand how little we know about our own brain that works with us everywhere and still is unknown to us. It reminds me of... Uh... Well, it is, it's that matrix idea, right? That eventually we could be just blobs sitting in a room and our brains are off doing whatever the hell they want to. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting. Did you study or did the military train you in computer science that that's what led you into your first career? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I would kind of, there's still a debate on where my career my first career uh, oh. begins. <laughs> uh, so, so you're referring to me being a hacker. That that's yeah. kind of the the, the the part of my life that is, I guess, the first. I don't know. Let's say decade of me being employed. So it started before the army when I was a kid who already got a computer, kind of a PC at I don't know, the age of 12 and started tinkering with it and learning how it works. And the level of how it works at the time was sufficient to actually do things that are pretty extensive like you, you could get computers were simple so if you just knew how to program something basic you could actually program an operating system or you can actually learn how files kind of being copied from one place to another and how to change that or it was easy to take a game like mario and give yourself one more life by changing one bit somewhere which now would become really really harder to do so that was uh, enough to be called a hacker in 1988, let's say. So that that's kind of already gave me the, the label. Back then, it definitely led me later on to be a soldier who experts uh, in this field were partnering with. So I was in the Israeli intelligence and I did similar thing for the Israeli intelligence for the entire time I was a soldier and learned a lot more skills with a lot more expensive computers that can allow me to, you know, run codes that uh, kids don't get to run because they don't have access to, you know, supercomputers of that level uh, when they're 19. And I think that this also got me to know a lot of people who had similar skills. So you also, for the first time, have someone to ask a question. Before that, if I got stuck, I got stuck. That was it. There were, maybe was 
you know, a magazine that I could find that has the answer, or I could let, write a letter and send it to some company in Silicon Valley and get a response within six months. But when I was in the army, suddenly there were 20 other people who all had the same skills and we could bounce off of each other ideas and, and really kind of do one more than, more than just kind of think together. We could also solve problems together. And these people became then my companions in the civilian life when I started working as a hacker for hire. So they started the companies with me or were in companies similar to mine that you can collaborate. So, so in a way, Israel is a kind of leader in the world in tech, partially because the army trains really, really well tech people, because in the army, you learn to not sleep and work in a team and to depend on each other, things that you kind of are useful in the business world. And also because the country has no other resources. So you've got to do that. There's no gas or, or, or oil or, or anything that you can rely on other than tech. So everyone has to work in tech. And I think that people become really good at it. And yeah. I was one of those people. It must have been exciting to to put on the white hat and go in and, and try and explode from within the, these programs and companies and securities and... I would say that that this to me is kind of an era that only now I realize how much fun it was and I didn't at the time realize. So so we were basically starting the world of hacking, cybersecurity in the late 90s when internet just started to happen. So very few households had, had kind of internet. It's like a dial-up when you have to disconnect your phone to connect to the internet. Yeah. Back then, uh, most banks didn't have online services, definitely not the government. So we were kind of working in a world that now seems ancient. Mm. And in that sense, we were hacking into the first companies that are now, now if you now hack into Apple, you're kind of a very, very legendary hacker. But back then, all those companies from Apple to Amazon, to they were trivial to hack into. And we were kind of doing that when it just started. And I think that if I collected all the stories from the time, it would make for a great book today. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, we kind of uh, assume that this is life. Okay, we hack into the bank, we hack into the government, we hack into this uh, big company. We didn't really see it as like what it turned to be now 20 years after. Do you remember that awful noise it used to make? That oh god! <laughs> we had a so so now now we're dating ourselves, the two of us. Uh, this is kind of how you know computers used to use phone lines to actually transfer data by making weird sounds. Uh, when the internet was in its birth, and it was so slow that the sampling rate was I think something like 2,400 bots. So it was 2,400 like ticks per second, which is still a lot for humans, but not much for a whistle. There were people who knew how to kind of uh, whistle with machines and actually like, you know, talk to fax machines with their voice. That this is like the time where I was a kid. We used to basically have like little whistles that we can turn on the phone and just whistle into the phone and fax machines would answer. This was hacking back in the 1990s. You can hack with your sound. Yeah, you know, I got to tell you, when I leave voice messages, it hangs up on me a lot because there's some timber in my voice that <laughs> must hit the frequency that it, that it signals a hang up. It happens so, it's so frustrating. <laughs> I can see how hacking, art, philosophy, to me, that's a very logical pod of things that lead to neuroscience. But what was it that popped you over that into the next field? 
So, so okay. So I guess after the army, I started a company that was kind of one thing. And I also went to university in parallel. This is common in Israel. You kind of do university is not a full-time job as it is in the US. You kind of, you also go to university, but you mostly have something else that you do that is the full-time job. So you take classes kind of two hours here, two hours there, and you okay. acquire your degree. It's also a shorter degree. It's, it's a three-year degree compared to the four years in the US. And it's also concentrated. So you, from day one, pick a major. You don't kind of get mm-hmm. to sample a little bit of like uh, you know, English and history and so on. You go to university saying, I'm going to major in physics and you take classes only in physics for the entire three years full-time. So I did physics in the beginning, thinking this is kind of where the answers to all the important questions that I am interested in is. I learned quickly, I think within the first year, that it's probably true, but that A, I'm not at the level that is any chance of solving them. In my class, there were people that were way smarter than me. And I said, okay, if they think that it's impossible, who am I to even consider uh, addressing those questions? And I think that, unfortunately, what I saw when I was in physics was that essentially not a lot of advances in physics happened in Mm -hmm. the fields I'm interested in, in theoretical physics, not a lot has happened. A lot of happened in experimental physics, like they find new galaxies and they, you know, notice gravitational waves and measure things. But First 75, 100 years, and they're still working on the same theory. Yeah. Exactly. So so the, the, the physicists that sit with like a piece of paper and think and sketch the answer, I think there was like a, what is it? I think Feynman has the, the Feynman three. I think someone maybe said about him. I think not, it wasn't him. Someone said about Feynman. Uh, what are the Feynman uh, ways of solving problems? It's something like, uh, one, write down the question Two, think very hard. Three, write down the answer. That was kind of Feynman's. Uh, I wasn't Feynman, so I was. I was get. I was stuck in number two always. Scotch uh, was in there <laughs> somewhere for him too. I think yeah. drink lots of scotch. <laughs> so I couldn't. I, I so I knew early on that physics is uh, kind of not working, and then I went to do a master's in philosophy, thinking, okay, if I can't answer the que- answer anything, at least I'm going to refine the questions, and I did that, and. Around the time I finished my uh, master's in philosophy of science, I think that the world somehow magically aligned so that the option for neuroscience became viable. So neuroscience at the time was still at its birth in that there were a lot of neuroscientists, but they were not in the neuroscience department. It was like in the biology department, there was someone studying the brain as a biologist. In the computer science department, there was someone studying AI as a computer scientist, but there was no department of neuroscience and they started to think that maybe it's going to be a good idea to have those some schools very few in the u.s mainly started to form departments for neuroscience this is now the year 2004 and and i said okay actually the other questions i'm interested in outside of kind of what happened before the big bang are questions about consciousness free will dreams and those i have a chance of answering those are within reach. So, so unlike the beginning of time, which we have very little success with for the last century, with dreams, we're making progress. So if I can join a lab that does that, maybe I'll have a chance. And I uh, had a chance encounter with a famous neuroscientist who himself was a former hacker. So this gave me the in. Right? Yes. Yeah. So that, yeah. that was Francis Crick, which, which, you know, in itself was a remarkable moment to, to meet kind of your childhood idol and to ha- happen to learn that he's a neuroscientist who also 
think of himself as a former hacker because he worked in Bletchley Park during World War II as a British intelligence officer. So he had some kind of take on hacking. So he saw himself as a hacker, turned into a neuroscientist, studies consciousness, the stars aligned. And basically he was the guy who I think planted the idea by saying, you know, that there's something there. The brain is kind of like a black box uh, that we can't really penetrate. If you know how to look at black boxes by sending inputs and measuring the outputs and inferring how they work, you have a chance of doing that. Uh, you know a lot of statistics, which hackers do know a lot of, which would be helpful for you. Kind of all of those things go try neuroscience. And it took me some time, but I did and never looked back. All right, let's start diving in there then. Uh, dreams. Yes. What are they? <laughs> so, okay, so, so let's, let's uh, start by, by alienating uh, half your audience who uh, is in any way a kind of a dream thinker, which is apparently what I do uh, more and more these days. I, I didn't know that, but I, I got an angry email a few days ago that made me realize that. Uh, if you've been studying dreams for the last 100 years, you've been studying the wrong thing. That's my opening line. Uh, you probably uh, followed the schooling of Carl Jung or Freud uh, or of any number of important uh, scholars who've been talking about dreams wrongly. Uh, here is me challenging 100 years of dream research. All that Freud and Jung and their colleagues had up until today, if you go to a psychoanalyst and you talk about your dream, is you telling a story when you're awake about what you think were your dreams. I'm speaking my words carefully. So you're not dreaming, you're awake and you have some residue memory in your brain and you use it to tell a story. Now here's why I'm gonna be nice to the uh, psychoanalysts for a second. It's extremely valuable. There's a reason your brain made up this particular story and is used to that story to see why your brain came up with you trying to kill your dad and sleep with your mom. There's, there's something there like that, that we should explore. And the language you use and the duration of what you think was your dream is important. A lot of things are useful and I would do it myself happily. I think it's really, really helpful and important. However, it's not necessarily your dream. It's an awake person talking about memories that stayed with them when they woke up. And we have quite a bit of evidence right now to the fact that this story is tainted by your awake self's language. You only use the language of your awake self. You uh, interpret them while you tell them already. And you sometimes even make them up entirely when you wake up with whatever thought was in your mind when you woke up, which you kind of quickly conjure into a story. So all that Freud and Jung and their colleagues had was you telling a story when you wake up and not your dream. They needed a neuroscientist to be able to actually access the brain of a person while they're sleeping to see a dream to actually see if dreams happen. If they happen, do they have a narrative like they want? How long do they take and so on? And this is new. And this is something we have for about 10 years uh, with varying levels of uh, kind of resolution. We can, uh, we can kind of get access to your dream, but sometimes it's very, very crude. We can see that you are dreaming, yes or no. Or we can see that you're dreaming of a person that you're familiar with. So not as uh, exciting as like you telling a story, that's very specific, but that's at least your dream. So now we can look in your brain and see what you see when you're sleeping. And we can wake you up then and ask you questions and see how similar is your memory of the dream 
to the actual dream that we think. And sometimes it's closer, sometimes it's very far, which is important. We can ask question of the dreamer uh, while they're dreaming. So some people who can essentially remain dreaming, but be in, in a state of lucid dream where they can communicate can be now, I don't know, kind of interface to the dream world and we can use them. We can do things uh, that are more invasive, like manipulate your dream, like actually use the fact that you're sleeping and dreaming and probe you to make you dream of things that we want and see how this works. So we know a lot more than you before. And I think this is fascinating. And this is where a lot of the people who care about dreams should spend their time right now because we need more hands and we need more hands looking at dreams, dreams rather than dreams when you remember them when you wake up. In order to do this, you would have to train the observer to what the brain is perceiving as an image, correct? So that you know that then when you see the same impulses that it, that equals cup, that equals man, mm -hmm. that equals, is that how that works? Or? So there is kind of a couple of ways to look at dreams. One is to, when you're awake, show you cup and, and, and your mom and your dad and kind of look at, when you're awake, show you pictures of your mom, dad and a cup. Look which part of your brain light up when you're awake and you see them. Then if you go to sleep. And if we now see that when you're sleeping, those parts light up, we can guess with some probability that you're dreaming of a cup or your mom or your dad. So that's approach number one. Your awake helps, helps the, the sleeping self tell us what's going on. That's approach one. Approach two, uh, done mostly with animals, is that we can actually zap your brain. So you're sleeping, we open your scalp and we inject electrodes into your brain and we now zap neurons when you're sleeping. And let's say you act your dream like you're, you're a rat and we zap the part of the brain that makes you act like you're moving and you start moving your legs while you're dreaming. So we can suggest that, okay, we, we actually made you dream of chasing a worm or something like that. So we can do that. There are less invasive methods by which we uh, use olfaction. So you're sleeping and we spray certain smells into your nose in certain concentration in the right moment. And then when you uh, wake up, you recall having a dream that is a little bit more positive or negative, and we can kind of navigate somehow the story while you're sleeping by injecting the right smell. Uh, sometimes we can actually uh, train you when you're awake uh, to memorize a complex narrative or have you play a game. And then uh, we play the sounds or the smells that activate the same memory while you're sleeping. And you don't even know that like it's, it's below your consciousness, but after you slept for a number of hours and you wake up, we ask you to play another game and you get better at the game. So you, we kind of toyed with your brain while you're sleeping by making you rehearse things while you're dreaming and then those come up when you're awake. So there, there's kind of multiple approaches. They're all unique in that for everything I tell you right now, there's probably five studies in the last 10 years that try them. Even those studies sometimes have conflicting uh, evidence, which is only to say that we're scratching the surface of understanding how dreams work, what they're for, and how we can manipulate them. When I was a little girl, I had a lot of nightmares and I got a book on lucid dreaming and, and read it and started doing that. And it's still something that I can do in, in my dreams. I look at my hand and then I look at a clock in the dream and then I know I'm dreaming and I have that conversation with myself. Is that really a thing or am I just fooling myself into thinking that I am actually aware of the dream I'm having? So I would say that there's about, the numbers kind of vary based on who you ask, but I would say there are about 12% of the population of people who have this experience naturally. So they can 
do that, what you just described. They can wake up while they're dreaming, but stay dreaming. And all they are now is in a state of awareness of their dream. And then they can navigate the dream. They can direct the movie. So they can say, okay, this is me in a dream. Great. So if that's true, I could fly. And then they start flying. That's the common uh, thing that people try to do first when they can. So they kind of say, okay, if that's the case, I'm going to fly. And they start flying in their dream. And then I say, if that's the case also, then maybe I could uh, bring my ex-boyfriend to dump me and uh, finally have him tell me that he loves me. And then you say that and suddenly he comes into your dream and says, oh, I always loved you. You're the love of my life. So people kind of do that. That's about... 12% of people have that naturally. There are arguments on whether you can train people to do that and you can kind of teach a person to become aware of their dream, uh, tactics like you intentionally drink a lot of water so you would need to wake up in the middle of the night to pee mm. and then you kind of train yourself to when you feel that need to ask yourself if you're dreaming. So there are schools in, in some places that are only about that and books and so on. The jury is still out on whether it works. Uh, whether you can train and so on, I just published a paper, sorry, submitted a paper, it's still under review, uh, that looks at a different way of doing that, which is to stimulate your brain. So we kind of know what parts of the brain are the parts that are controlling you being, let's say, in control versus the parts of the brain that are kind of in charge of dreaming. And usually they're, they're kind of not working together. So when you go to dream, the control parts are silent. So what we did is we basically zapped them using a machine that stimulates the brain and made them wake up. And it doesn't interfere with the dream. So your dream is still happening, but we just woke up the conscious part of you. And when this person wakes up, they're able to not kind of get out of a dream, but stay in a dream and control it. So we were able to do that with a higher number of people uh, without a lot of training. So, so I think that in the next couple of months, I would say, not even years, we're going to perfect that. So we can mm. get to a level where any person who wants that could go sleep in a sleep lab, have someone stay up next to them and monitor their brain activity to know that they're in a dream state and then turn a machine that will activate their brain and wake them up so they can control their dreams fully. You were talking about memory and how, you know, we wake up from a dream and we think, oh, I dreamt all this stuff, but a memory is a it's no real such thing as a memory because it's always changing. I think about, um, I was thinking about this the other day. So our eye sees everything except for the one spot where there's nothing. And then the brain fills it in and we just have to rely on the brain to know what it's doing and to guesstimate what we're seeing. I feel like memory in a way is that in my I think the analogy that I like is the telephone game. Memory is kind of like a telephone game. Like you start with a, a memory that's accurate. You you talk to me right now. Memories are being formed in your brain and my brain that are perfect. That's this is happening. From that moment on, memories are malleable. Anything that happens to you when you think about this experience, when you tell other people about this experience, we leak to the memory and it's gradually changing. So if if the two of us never talk again to each other, live our lives and keep telling other people about this moment together right now and meet in one year, let's say, we're probably going to have different accounts of this experience. You might remember my shirt in different color, the way you thought I should wear it. Uh, I would remember you nodding your head with agreement to everything I say and uh, forget that sometimes you nodded your head uh, in uh, saying absolutely not. Uh, I would think that uh, everything I said was smarter than it was. A lot of things would happen that align our personality with our uh, memories. And they're interesting in itself. Like why is the brain totally changing uh, reality? But it's 
the beauty of kind of how our brain fixed itself, allowing us to always create a good version of the story that helps us see the world nicely. Is that what it is? It's a Pollyanna mechanism? But what, what good is that? In fact, I would think that it would be more safe for the brain to evolve to, to look at everything in a negative light. No, I, I, I would say the point, it's a personality. <laughs> I, I, I was going to say it's personality. Some people, you know, I, I'm a optimistic person, so yeah. I probably shape my memories always for the better and think that everything went well. And some people that are more uh, pessimistic are kind of constantly seeing. So it's it's the personality is what drives this mechanism. It's not that it's always better. But for the most part, this mechanism is there so that we can cope with things and keep the experience without keeping the negative experience uh, in full. So the, the, the sentence we always use uh, is so that you can remember without relieving the experience. So if something bad happens, you want to remember that something that happens, so you would know to learn from that and not go through it again. But what's hopefully not happening is that you go through the same emotions every time you think about the bad memory. So memory and perception are strange bedfellows. They don't... Yes. So memory is our brain's way of relating to the past, whereas perception is the present. Uh, the current experience, perception, and account of reality is as true as it gets, not perfectly true, but as true as your brain can get. And then once it happened, it stores it memory. And from then on, memory has a life of its own. And it's going to change it. It's going to adapt it. It's going to connect it to other memories based on needs. And you don't have any more real grasp of the moment that things happen. You have no idea why you made the decision you made back then. You have some intuitions, but they might be totally flawed. When you talk about brain hacking, is it then that you're trying to convince the memory and not the perception, right? Because you're, you're relating. Then how do things like advertising work or body dysmorphia work or uh, any of those? Because I so think I, advertising and body dysmorphia are also, you know, run hand in hand down the... That's a very good point, yeah. So I, I'll say, I'll say in, here's the, the high-level answer and the, and the more specific one in a second. So the high-level answer is that our brain is made of modules and they're each kind of independent. Memory works as memory and perception is a different one. And attention is a third one. And they're all working on their own thing. They connect to each other, the interface, but this interface is unreliable in that you can think that you transmitted from one module to another information and in doing so, you assume that it's reliably in the other side, but it's not the case. There could be a third model in between that sits there and changes things. And then what gets to the third module is not true. That, that's kind of a high-level explanation of that. So, so you think that you uh, made a decision. And once you made a decision, you can store it in memory. And that's it. Decision is there as it was. But in between, something changed, and what's stored in memory is a totally different interpretation of the decision. And in two weeks, when someone asks you, why did you make this choice? You don't really know, so you load the memory. And if the memory is flawed, you're going to come up with a different answer entirely to a choice that you made, not even aligned with what actually happened, maybe even reversed and so on. So that, that's kind of is what I mean by- Is there awareness of that, though? So I can tell you that. Oh, and, okay. in, and in doing that, you'll- kind of be more aware of that experience and maybe try to control it and so on. But when it happens, you won't know. You mm -hmm. always think that what's in your memory was put there by you and is accurate. We don't really have a way to doubt our own memories. Like if someone comes to you tomorrow and says to you, Susan, uh, yesterday you had a, a 
really, really fun basketball game with your friends around uh, you know, 11 a.m. You say, no, 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 at 11 a.m. I was talking to Moran on a podcast. And they say, no, you were with us playing basketball. And you say, guys, I have a memory of me on this podcast talking to Moran. I know where I was. And they start showing you, you know, videos of you playing basketball with them, having 10 friends who say that they were there. Nothing will change your mind because you trust your memory more than you trust anything else. It would be very, very hard for you to change your memory if your memory is of an event. And that's kind of aligned with the reality we've had all our lives through history. Memories were reliable, but it might not be the case in the future when people can actually hack into your brain and change your memories inside your head or when you can actually have deep fakes that tell you things and you believe them, but actually they're flawed or wrong. Uh, those things will change dramatically and we wouldn't be able to necessarily know what's true and what's not. You know, right now, people who have memories that are not true are usually regarded people with some disorder. If, if everyone says uh, you're here in, in the room with us and you say, no, I'm not, I'm on the moon right now, people consider you to have some kind of a disorder because the majority decides what's reality. And if one person doesn't agree, they're the problem. But if we can start hacking into people's brains, it will be a lot more complex because two people would sit in the same room and might have different realities because a third person actually hacked their brain and makes the changes between their perception and memory flawed. And now they're really sitting in the same place, but not experiencing the same thing. But that's already happening, as I said, in advertising or watching a television show where everyone is beautiful. And then you go, oh, my God, maybe my is my hair not shiny enough or my <laughs> lips not big? You know, you start like pulling at your face thinking everything is wrong. That's is that not hacking? So I, that's step one. To an extent, we still have a, a skeptical system to decide what comes in. So at, at the very least, it's, it's you watching the TV show and you can turn it off if you don't mm. want. Or you can ask a person next to you, tell me, am, am I losing my mind? Is it true that my face looks like that or that I'm too fat or too skinny? You can still, you, you still know that information is coming and you can, to some extent, be critical. Imagine that now it got into your brain without you actually processing it. So someone just had access to your brain and just planted a memory there and you just wake up in the morning after a regular night's sleep, you don't know anything, but you wake up in the morning and you have a strong memory of you being on a podcast with someone and it just didn't happen. But you have a memory as if it happened. It's as real as it gets. And suddenly you have to say, do I trust my own memories? Like, is it possible that something that I'm certain about actually was not happening at all and someone just put the idea in my mind? And if so, can I trust something else? And you really have a hard time with everything because you start doubting the essence of who you are. We don't even need a chip for that, though. I remember watching experiments that were done. Of course, it was the 70s when everybody did these sorts of things. But uh, the there was the girl in the room and the researcher came in and said, oh, you were in a fight uh, and, and you got arrested. And she said, no, no. And then the next day she came in, you were in a fight, you got arrested. And then this happened. No, no. And that repeated that experiment until eventually the subject recalled not only the fight, but being arrested and having this entire experience. And then the researcher comes in and says, we made all that up. None of that happened. Yeah, that there are a few versions of that. Wow. There's a woman at Irvine, Elizabeth Loftus, professor in Irvine, uh, whose kind of, I think, career is all about proving how flawed our memories are in the context of 
false memories in the context of a jury uh, and, mm. and witnesses, because we developed a world that assumes that if you say, I saw it in my own eyes, then it's valid. And that's a tough world to be in where we know that our own eyes can fool us, that our senses generally can fool us, that our memories can fool us, and that generally things can change after they're already in our brain and we have no control. So she made a career in showing that, you're right, since the 70s up to today, in many, many ways, very basic experiments that she kind of convinces you by repeating something enough time or using a language that's a little bit different. So she would ask a witness how fast were the cars when they hit each other compared to when they blasted in each other. And just by using the word blasted compared to hit, they at 25 miles per hour, because people imagine blast is a faster thing. So she shows in many ways how easy it is to fool our brain from the outside. And I think that it's going to get on steroids uh, when we actually can hack into the brain from the inside and change things without you even having access to the process. Let's talk about that now. Okay. That's coming. That's already actually in existence. There are some people walking around out there that are part machine and part human. I mean, that's been true for a long time with things like the heart stuff and the prosthetics and all that. But you're talking about specifically a chip for the brain. Right. So so I think that the the uh, science fiction slash reality uh, kind of extent of this is that at some point we can have neural implants in every person's brain that help us think and help us recover from diseases of the brain and are justifiable so that we will put them ourselves. It wouldn't be the government planting a chip. We would go to the doctor and say, hey, I want one. Like a Parkinson's so, chip. Exactly. Yeah. So, the, so the example that the easiest one to think about is right now in the US, there are about 40,000 people already have a neural implant in their head. And it's there because they have some brain disorder that requires surgery and a device to help them deal with that. So epilepsy is a good one as an example. The epilepsy means that you have a seizure. So part of their brain starts working without any prompt. And because when parts of the brain start speaking, other parts answer and other parts answer those that answer. And before long, you have a storm of activity in your brain that wasn't necessary. And it could lead to behaviorally, you starting to shake, losing consciousness, falling down, hurting someone. If you're driving, you can have an accident. You basically lose your mind for a few seconds to minutes until your brain recovers from that earthquake in your head. And who knows what happened in the meantime to your body. So the counter to that is that uh, for some people, you can put a chip inside their head that essentially recognizes that the storm begins. It recognizes that some cells are speaking in an unprovoked way and immediately counter that. They kind of zap the other neurons by telling them, whatever you hear right now is not true. Don't respond. And this stops the entire storm from happening. And that uh, is a good solution, so much so that many people with epilepsy choose to have this procedure where a neurosurgeon is going to open their brain, put the neural implant, close everything, and they're going to live life with this neural implant forever. Mm. Now, as a former hacker, I can tell you, if you put a digital device in the brain with a single purpose to just recognize that a storm is about to happen and stop it, you can do a lot of other things with it. It's a device that gets updates regularly, needs to charge from a battery every, every now and then. So it listens to the outside world and it takes input and then it knows how to zap neurons and make them work. 
which means that we can easily activate other neurons or activate the brain without uh, any prompt. And then the neurons that you're supposed to silence are actually starting to speak to the chip. And suddenly you can cause uh, a seizure of a, a person who didn't have one. So, so it's hackable. And that's version 1.0 of a neural implant for a very specific purpose with only one designation that already can do a lot of bad things. Now there are more and more chips like that that are developed for other disorders. Uh, so... We're going to have more and more people with implants like that in their brain. And that's without talking about the fact that there are other chips that people develop for recreational purposes, which could just help you navigate better or get access to Wikipedia from your mind. And when people start putting that in their brain, they think of the single purpose they put it for. But as a hacker, I can tell you that most banks uh, built a website just so people can see their accounts, but we were able to steal money from other banks to one bank. So the same is true for your chip. You're going to put it only to stop seizures, but I could then you know, steal your memories. Yeah, that's uh, going back to philosophy. The ethics surrounding all of that is fascinating. And I think about something that like if I had a drug addiction and I came to the doctor and said, hey, put this chip in me that will make me not want this drug that I want. Or what about military? Put this chip in all the military and they will just perceive themselves to be super fighters and won't stop until they drop dead or, you know, or con, you know, people that have been convicted of something. And then what happens? And then you have this prison system of people with these, it's, it is dystopian at best, but in, with every great thing, there's this terrible other thing, the shadow side of the wonderful side. Exactly. I mean, I mean, the fork in the road that we're approaching soon, very, very fast, is exactly that. There are tons of benefits, life-saving benefits, to having neural implants in the brain. There are also benefits that are societal benefits. Like if we can, let's take it a little bit to the realm of science fiction, make you smarter. Let's say, it's, let's say smart is like one thing and we can just enhance that. And by being smarter, you can actually save the world. You'll find a cure for cancer or, uh, you know, find cure for other diseases or just solve those uh, physics questions that I struggled with as a kid because suddenly you'll have the smarts to do that. As a society, we want that. But the question that comes with that is what happens if that person that's so smart suddenly starts thinking of us regular mortals as, you know, ants that are useless to interact with? Kind of like we think about ants. We don't really try to sit an ant on our hand and say, let's talk about philosophy and meaning of life. We assume mm -hmm. that the ants are so dumb and inferior to us that there's no point talking to them. And that's because we look at IQ and ability to communicate as a measure of intellectual abilities. We say, okay, all humans are smart, all animals are less so. Those superhumans with the neural implants that make them smarter could actually save our lives by you know, curing cancer. But the second thing they're going to do is they're going to say, well, I'm going to talk to this uh, ant uh, in the form of Susan and Moan, who can only communicate using words. And they speak in 150 words per minute, which is so slow. And they have no ability to actually derive equations, uh, differential equations in their mind like I do. Like, what's the point of interacting with them? Let's give them bananas and put them in the zoo. It's like flowers for Algernon, though. What happens to that person, too? It ends up ostracizing them because they... It's going to be a fork beyond. of humanity. Like, like yeah. Those people would live their own lives, kind of talking to each other, solving differential equations and making lives better for themselves. And we're going to be an anecdote in the kind of course of history 
as you know, as as we think about other animals, we kind of we think of all the animal kingdom essentially is inferior to us, right. and we put them in zoos and safaris, and we help them, but we don't really try to interact with them. We kind of say, okay, look at this, uh, uh, you know, the smartest monkey out there. We say, oh my God, there's a monkey out there that can interact like a two-year-old baby. That's amazing. Right, we, we're impressed by the monkey that can actually communicate with symbols and maybe ask uh, with some signs for uh, bananas. Imagine now that we are that. So we, we know right. we, we take the smartest human. Let's say I don't know. We used Feynman uh, earlier. So you know they say, yeah. oh my god, look at this! This is Feynman. He's so smart. He's like two-year-old Timmy here. He can do uh, some uh, high-frequency derivatives in his mind. That's amazing. Oh, now let's put him back in the zoo. Yeah, it's. <sighs> It's a lot to wrap. Would you do it? Would you stick a chip in your brain? No. For, so for now, I so you know, I, I I would still research that. So I would try. I want to understand it, and I want to be able to kind of get to the level where we have the option. But if you ask me right now, I would say we're not ready for that, and I would suggest to not do that. And I would also, if I had a position to do that, which I don't, I would suggest that governments should be involved in regulating it. So the opposite of what governments want, instead of giving it more money and like controlling it and having it as a tool, I would say kind of have scientists to do that be registered. So you know exactly who's doing what. Have the scientists to do that report regularly on what they find. Uh, have committees deal with the ethics of that. So right now, it's basically scientists going rogue. We do it in our labs, we advance, we talk about it and so on, and there's no checks and balances on that. And I think it's it's because we didn't do it yet that people think, oh, the science fiction is going to happen in like 100 years, we have time. I think it will be much faster because those studies are exponential. 10 years ago, we couldn't do anything about dreams, and now we have a lot of dreams in our database. I think that right now we know how to put neural implants for one purpose. In 10 years, we're going to have neural implants that people will put in their brain for any purpose. And that's it. Now it's too late. Do you think that part of what drives the, the idea of the chip implant is a fear that AI will be our dominant being on the planet? And, or do you think it's more of the, if you build it, they will come? So I think that there's now kind of two schools. There's the, the School of Silicon Valley and the school, I would say, of Europe. Uh, so the Silicon Valley school basically says AI is going to become uh, superior to us and they're going to eliminate us. Uh, either in a Terminator-like movie where they come to get us and so on, or in a much uh, less fancy way, just by uh, anecdotal. So they won't, even, they won't even fight us. They would kill us by... So I think that the... The uh, person who wrote about that uh, uh, is a scientist that I like. He said, uh, one day you're going to give computers the task to calculate pi to the one trillionth decimal point. That would be the task. And the computer is going to kill all humanity right away because it's going to realize that to fulfill the task, it needs to get a lot of super kind of computing power. And there's a lot of humans who take power by driving cars and using electricity. So it's going to shut down electricity. It's going to kill all humans. It wouldn't even do that as a, as a fight between machines and humans. It will just try to complete its task, which is calculate pi. And as a, as a collateral, humanity is going to end. So that's that's kind of the gloomy outcome. It won't even be like a war like we see in the movies. It would be really like a silent shutdown. It's like of the flight of the Concords. The humans are dead. You know that song? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, so that, so that, that's kind of approach number one. And if if you take this approach, that's the Silicon Valley kind of narrative. If you take this approach, then now there's two ways: either to not advance AI, no one can do that anymore; it's too late. We have it, or to embed AI in us. 
And that's the kind of current, you know, a lot of tech giants are looking at this. Okay, so we, we, we the battle of like AI is going to be there, then it's going to be superior to us in many ways. But what if we put AI in the neural implants and then they're going to be part of us? So they won't kill the host because we're kind of the battery for those AI. Uh, and you know, and, and and even those people see a lot of benefits. So right now, I said earlier that humans are terrible uh, for themselves. Like we eat way more than we should because our brain is flawed in feeling that it's full. If you put this neural implant, it might actually know how much nutrients you got already, and it knows when you need to stop, and it will trigger the feeling of you being full on the right moment, and you won't get uh, uh, you won't eat unhealthy food because it will perfectly align it or your brain's going to shut down your devices the ai in your brain they shut up everything so you can go to sleep for 10 hours like you should perfectly so it will actually save your life so, so these guys have a narrative that says not only will it not kill us it will also make our life better and this is the next level of evolution we develop the kind of symbiosis between machines and humans so we're uh, living a better life the more european approach is uh, ai will never get there it's kind of like a you know science fiction to imagine that AIs are going to ever become smarter than us, nothing to worry about, keep developing them. Like we're really kind of, it's mostly cookie tech giants that they believe that there needs to feel about that. Let's just kind of move on with our life. And there's, I'm not worried about that. Uh, so far, the Europeans are more right. We don't have any AI, but all you need is like one day for one machine to go out of the, you know, to start scaling up and that changes. So I'm at, on the camp that even if it's not here yet, it's time to think about it and, and create rules and laws for that right now, because when it's there, it's going to spiral. So once the AI is smart, it's going to also be smart to build better AIs. So we're going to be out of the equation quickly. So even if it will take 50 years, it's useful to plan now. It's wild to think about, isn't it? What do you think consciousness is? Uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm the reason I'm where I am is because I have no answer. Uh, uh, so I, I mean, th there's kind of classical answers, which is that the feeling of what happens. That's the title of a book by my former PhD advisor uh, and Francis Crick's kind of hallmark sentence. Um, I think that we, uh, you know, scientists have very, very dull and boring answers about that. It's they call it qualia. It's the qualitative experience of things that you cannot uh, name. So the, the example they give, it's, it's a boring answer, I can tell you right away. Not an answer, answer. <laughs> Exactly. It's like saying, what is uh, the Big Bang? What happened before the Big Bang? We know everything up to the fraction of a second, but just not before. So in the same way, consciousness, we kind of spiral around the same thing. I think that the best uh, narrative that, that I have, two narratives that, I, that people told me that kind of speak to it nicely. One is about... Uh, a scientist, her name is Lucy, let's say. It's a made-up story. And I tell you, Lucy is a scientist who studies uh, vision, and she studies specifically um, the color red. And she knows the frequencies of the color red, and she knows the tomatoes are red, and she knows kind of everything you need to know about red in that, in that uh, kind of how it affects us and how what are the cons and the in the rods in your eye that process and so on. But the only thing about uh, Lucy is that she's blind. She's never she's never seen the color red. Like what is missing? What what is what is is the difference between knowing everything about something and actually experiencing it? And that's what consciousness is. Like you can mm -hmm. describe the entire world, but there's something to actually the feeling of it that 
that's experiment number one. And example number one, it kind of helps, but doesn't really. It's kind of a nice way of uh, avoiding the question if you want. And the other similar thing is that uh, <laughs> uh, there's a story that I actually use it in my studies often. There's websites where I help people actually fill fill this uh, questionnaire. But it boils down to a question where it says, let's say, Susan, uh, scientists have learned everything they need to know about the brain. So they know everything about the brain. Every neuron is modeled perfectly. Every connection and synapse are working perfectly. We know everything about your brain, so much so that we can actually build a replica of your brain. So now in the aquarium, in the other room, there's a duplicate of your brain, one-to-one. Every thought you have, it has. Every dream you have, it has. Every emotion you feel, it feels. Everything is perfect. And we offer you this deal where we're going to take uh, this brain, put it in your body. Uh, so basically build a replica of you. And this replica is going to leave this room and it will leave the room with a million dollars. So we're going to pay you a lot of money. The only thing we want is to kill you. So we're going to, we don't have, we don't have two of you. So everything about you is duplicated. We're just going to kill you and give the replica everything that it needs to live perfect life. The question is, would you take this deal? And most people say no. And if you kind of ask them why, it boils down to them saying, well, but there's something that you can't copy. Say, what is that? Like every atom would be in perfect shape in exactly the same way. Say, no, no, but there's something else. That's me. And what we think is that this is what people refer to as consciousness. This thing that has no uh, matter, no energy, uh, cannot be explained in anything, but we feel that it's there. It, of course, violates all the laws of physics if there's something here that uh, cannot be measured, affects the world, but is not in any way deterministic, but yet we all feel it. So that's what we call consciousness. Two so not helpful that, answers. Is that different to you than say what, what the soul is? Do you believe in a soul? No, so I, I would say that's the same. So so I would I would yeah, yeah. like what, what I think pe- some people would call this thing that you can't copy yeah. the soul, some people would call it the mind. Uh, they, they kind of refer to it as an untangible uh thing you cannot measure you can't understand but is there and we think we feel it so so i'm giving you bad answers because describing the characteristic of this thing but we don't know what it is and that's the the point of it is that like once we define it people don't agree with it anymore let's say okay it's this neuron that's your that's your consciousness so say that's the case and you can actually copy it and i wouldn't mind being dead but people say no no it's not because i'd still mind being dead if you take it and copy it so every time we find something uh, scientists call it the NCC, the Neural Correlates of Consciousness. Every time we find the smallest amount of brain tissue that is required for you to feel mm. conscious and so on, people say, yeah, but there's more. Like, not enough. That's Have you ever been inside someone's brain who has shuffled off this mortal coil? <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I think I work with patients who undergo brain surgery. And in the course of my work, I've seen all kinds of cases that challenge what consciousness is and no i think that uh, those are case studies that you read out in the books uh, people who have even let's take the simplest case people who have a, a seizure epilepsy for the two minutes that they're undergoing the seizure you're talking to them they're there they can interact they maybe answer or speak or look at you and so on but after a few minutes they wake up and they have no memory of what happened they don't know that it happened, they have no understanding why they said what they said, they're not able to, this was their brain communicating, but somehow it didn't rise up to their consciousness. Mm. Uh, There's I mean, we all experience that to an extent when you go to sleep. You know that you were there, but you weren't. For for eight hours, you were in a state that you can't explain. You you, you learn to accept that, but it's an experiment of consciousness happens every night. We lose it, 
it comes back and we don't know why it happens, how it happened and so on. There's a, a drug like a pharmaceutical that uh, I forget the name right now that you can get if you're going to a procedure or surgery that to me is a philosophically interesting idea. It's a drug that it's, it's, it's basically an anesthesia drug. It's supposed to make you uh, kind of not be there for this procedure. But unlike many anesthesia drugs, it basically makes you fall asleep and you're unconscious for the entire thing. All this drug does, it makes you not create memories. So you're awake the entire time. Mm. So we need to be awake for the procedure so you can answer a question and interact with us. But when they give you the antidote of this drug, you just forget everything from the moment you got the first one. So if you're feeling excruciating pain during the surgery, you actually feel the pain. It's, it's just that we're going to eliminate the memory of the one and a half hour surgery. So we operate on you and the, your, your brain experiences the full kind of everything. You're there. You're seeing people cut through your skin and you see all the interaction and you smell everything. It's just that your brain has no memory of that. And the question is, is that, what does it mean? Like if it's, if you were consciously there, but you, you didn't retain any of that, is it reality or not? It's, it's philosophically a very interesting idea. And the brain does it with trauma, right? It says, nope, that's way too much. And it shoves that in some weird space and another. But what's so bizarre to me about that is the idea that in order for us to even have this conversation, there's a whole bunch of our brain at work. You know, I'm hearing what you're saying and then I'm thinking about it and then I'm formulating my answer and then I spit it out at you and and all of that. So if all those regions are being activated how is it that the entire thing gets wiped clean? It's bizarre to me. I mean, I know I'm not a neuroscientist, but I think I... that we know enough about how, like in, in the end, all of those, what you described as, as an experience is kind of compressed at some point and placed in memory. So we know that at some point, the present gets saved somewhere. And if we can just interact with the saving process, basically block it from happening, which we know how to do, your experience part of the brain thinks it saved it, but we made it not save, so it's just lost. Wow. And it's it sounds almost like a machine kind of, you know, like a computer. computer. I just like, a, yeah, I just, yeah. Uh, I interfere with the saving. So you think you pressed save, so you think you're good, but the file is not there and that's it. I eliminate the memory. So wild. The whole thing is, I, this is what I love. The brain is so infinitely fascinating. For every question, I feel like there's 30 more questions. You know? I mean, uh, uh, if you find that, then you should, you're in the wrong business. You, you should come and join us. Uh, <laughs> we need more people. Oh, time. How the brain perceives time, um, which is very bizarre. I don't know if you've ever been in an accident of any kind, but I remember uh, I was running off the road when I was 17. I was running off the road by a drunk driver and the car flipped a handful of times. And I remember, I think I remember, or at least now after this conversation, maybe I don't, but that everything inside the car was so slow. Yeah, so there, there's a research on, on, on that with uh, interesting kind of learnings on essentially, if you kind of summarize it in simple words, uh, our brain is used to taking a snapshot of the world every about second and a half. So the present moment is about a second and a half. Huh. So every so between you the that much huh. time? Wow, that seems like <laughs> roughly. A lot. Wow. So so on 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 average, like on a day, you have about twenty thousand presents, the uh, moments of present that kind of get 
captured and stored. And at the end of the day, when you go to sleep, your brain kind of looks back at all of those events and starts choosing which ones to register and put them in long-term memory, which ones to delete, which ones to kind of compress. So if you walked from home to the grocery store, let's say 500 uh, steps, you had a number of moments, your brain might not need to remember every step and every smell and every experience, it will kind of collapse it all into one memory. I went to the grocery store and it will take a movie of kind of that experience and compress that. So, so that's how the brain overnight decides what to retain, what to keep for a while, maybe delete it after, what to surely save. Kind of, It, it makes this, this, decisions, this decision all the time. Um, but that's on normal behavior. At some point, systems in the brain can tell us we're now going through an important thing. We need to code and sample a lot faster. So an accident would be that. When you have a car accident, your brain says, whatever happens right now is critical. Take a lot more kind of you know, screenshots, if you want, of that thing. And instead of doing it one and a half second at a time, you might do 100 per second. I don't know what's the speed, but it would be much faster. And suddenly you just collect a lot more things. Now, because your brain at the time doesn't know, it expects that every time you take a snapshot, it's been a second and a half, it feels to us like things were a lot slower because we suddenly have from the same 10 seconds, 100 snapshots rather than five, like we expect to. So we think it must've been really, really slow because we have so many kind of memories of that. I remember the face of the person. I remember the smell of the car. I remember the shock and the hole on someone else's uh, eyes when they were in, next to me. So you suddenly create a lot of more memories. And this happens usually when it's an emotional. So the emotion system is kind of telling the memory system, take more in in this moment. And that's why we remember emotional things a lot more. Everyone remembers where they were in 9-11. You might not remember where you were on 9-10. It's, it's the same distance from today in terms of dates, but one of them was emotional for you. So you know exactly, I was here when the towers fell. And if someone asks you two hours prior or two hours later, you have no idea because that's not as emotional for you and you kind of compress that out. That's why things like DID are so fascinating to me. The idea that the brain is dealing with trauma to such an extent that it creates new personalities to absorb the shock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's, that's, that's a, I wild. mean, we have very, very different coping mechanisms based on the age we're at, based on the type of experience, based on how many times they happen. So if we see horrible things multiple times, suddenly the brain gets used to them. And, and the third time might not be as, as painful as the first time terribly. Like, like it will be a terrible idea, but like people who've been to wars right. will sometimes not remember events that Others who join just for one day think we're the most horrifying thing that they experience. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's kind of a fail-safe mechanism of our brain that it cannot remember everything. There's just too much out there. It has to pick and choose, and it lets emotions definitely navigate the process of picking and choosing, but it also lets experience, need, a kind of immediacy, all of those be highly important. There are a few brains out there that have existed that catalog absolutely everything, right? The people that have complete, or is that a, a fallacy that they're no, really it's rare, but it's true. So, so there are, and we don't understand much about it. So there, there are few humans with extraordinary brains that have uh, infinite memories, so to speak. Like, they, you know, you can ask, there's people like that, like kind of like savants, who you can right. ask them a... Uh, what did you have for breakfast in 1990 on June 2 at the 9 a.m.? They say, oh, that's easy. And just, it seems that they just remember everything. What we know already about everyone is that our neural capacity 
is higher than we use. So most of us can, can remember a lot more than we do. We don't know what the limit is. If you think that all brains are similar, and so those people with this extreme memory are <clears throat> evidence that we can all be that, uh, but most humans don't practice that, don't train that, and don't have like the, the need for that. So we don't know if everyone can be that or just some unique individuals. You teach people that they can hack into their own brains and expand their capabilities or overcome things or... So we so so the, the the term hack could be used for many things. So so I use it for many things. From the beginning, we spoke about helping athletes and and senior people in the world make decisions better. This is seen by some as hacking the brain because it teaches them how to use more of their brain and essentially kind of know how to tell between the moment where you think you cannot do anymore and when you actually cannot do anymore. So that's yeah. that would be a hack. Memory is another one. We're doing with memory mostly things that play with uh, the ability to actually change memories while you're sleeping. So we ask the question, if memory is kind of a system and we can understand it, could we change it? And could we change it uh, behind your back? What is your, is like uh, in air quotes, like it's still the same brain, but we toy with your brain by changing memories inside your head after you put them there just to show that it's possible. Uh, with animal studies, now, we, now I'm saying we as a collective, we neuroscientists, yeah. we look at uh, how memories get stored and we try to see if we can actually collect memories from your brain such that when you're no longer there, we can put them in a different brain and it's just going to work with that. So there's studies with rats and mice that essentially copy the memories it's like oh. the worm thing where you shock the worm and then you chop up the worm and feed it to the other worm and then it responds. With the so that's one. There's, there's, there's behavioral studies that are similar. That's, so the, the, the most extreme version is you actually take a rat and teach the rat to navigate in a maze. And by doing that, the rat creates a map of the maze in its mind. And then you bring another rat who's never been there and you just basically stimulate the cells of the new rat such that it can go into the same maze and just know how to work there. So that, that's the most extreme version of like copying memory from one to another. There are more behavioral one, not brain-wise, that kind of show how memories can be copied even without incentive. There's a famous study on, I think it was bonobo monkeys, uh, where you have them sit in a cage. You have like, let's say 10 bonobos sit in a cage and there's a ladder and one of them sees a banana at the top of the ladder and it starts climbing and it starts climbing up. It touches one of the kind of levels of the ladder and this zaps the floor and all the other nine bonobos are getting electric shock. So this one falls down and basically they all learn that uh, climbing the ladder gives electric shock. So you shouldn't do that. And if one tries, they immediately beat him up. So he wouldn't do that because they all suffer when one tries to get to the banana. So quickly, all 10 monkeys learn that no one should climb the ladder because it's just a bad idea. So fine, that's, that's learning one. Now you take one of the bonobos out and you bring a new one. Number 10 is replaced. The new one sees a banana, tries to run into it. Immediately, the other nine beat him and stop him from doing that. So he learned that he can't do that. And now you replace the second one. So now there's two who weren't there in the original thing. They don't even know why, but every time they try to go to banana, someone beats them up. So they learned that he shouldn't do it. And you replace the third and the fourth. And at some point, you replace all 10. There are 10 bonobos. None of them knows why, but they just know that you don't climb the ladder. And you created a memory in the minds of 10 monkeys without any understanding of why. So they just, and they keep, you know, you bring new monkeys, they keep training them. And all the monkeys just learn to not climb the ladder, that it's bad for you, that you should beat someone who tries to do that. And no one knows why anymore. And that's, you know, a nice experiment. That's also an analogy for life. Like many times we don't challenge things 
that are assumptions because we were told this is how it's done and you right. kind of do a bad thing if you do that and you live life without asking yourself, wait, why? But you should always ask yourself why. Curiosity is the best thing that we have. Damn it. That would be a good ending for a podcast. You can, you can put that <laughs> yes, yes. Kind of... I can ask you a million more questions and I do. I want to ask so many more. So maybe there'll be a part two someday when you have time. But um, yeah, you have a website, moreonsurf.com. So everyone yes. can find you there for sure. So I'm an academic, which means I'm the easiest to find. If you just put my name on any search engine, you find a website and on the front page, you have my email and I get daily emails from people i try to respond to everything slowly so i think that the, as academic i think it's my duty to be accessible and i am so yeah i'm the easiest to find it might take time for me to respond but at the end of the day i'm there always i do have one last question i'm sorry i know you've given so of much course. of your time but in thinking of the bonobos which i thought all they did with us was have sex so the fact that they're you know doing anything other than that is amazing <laughs> but the idea that that you can do that, create a memory in, in, in them that the original monkey isn't even there anymore. I think about that with the idea that uh, our DNA holds memory. For example, uh, the Holocaust, like I have ancestors killed. So I have that in my DNA for the few that survived and then had children and those children's children. And when I watch a movie about the Holocaust, it's it's very difficult. And I, I feel like I react more than I should, like even further beyond what normal empathy would be. I'm become a quivering mess of jelly and tears and snot. And I wonder, is it somewhere in my DNA that the memory has trickled down through? And so I'm not only responding to just empathy, but some sort of a weird biological trigger that's innate in my body so this is a pandora box that just opened because so recently there are a lot of studies in epigenetics basically in the, in the studies of essentially transfer of information from one child to another that show that you do transfer some things in your dna from parents to children so it's an kind of open field relatively new that shows that you know in the kind of transfer of, of genetics, you also transfer some material from the mom that carries information in it. So we do transfer some information across generations that we learned. You know, it's like a, it's been a debate since Darwin's time. Like if you get a tattoo, will your son be born in a tattoo? The answer is no. But apparently some things that you learned in your life will be transferred to your son over your genetic material. So in that sense, kind of the boundary between what gets transferred and what doesn't get transferred is becoming murky. There's something that gets transferred. You learn something and your son will know them because it moved there. Then there are also the uh, things that we uh, kind of, you know, your brain is software, but also hardware if you want. So, so I mean by that is that you were born with a certain brain size and structure and connections. And then over life, you kept changing them. This is why we were software. You kept changing them. So the changes were you evolving over a lifetime, but to your kids, you will pass at the very least some of the ingredients to form connections that are similar. So your kids are going to be born with some learnings that you acquired over time. Does it scale to the level of a, you can transfer a full memory of the Holocaust? Probably not. It's probably more vague. Uh, but we know, for instance, that our experience, the experience with the monkeys again, that showed that a newborn monkey, a few hours old, 
is shown a picture of a snake. It's never seen a snake in its life. It doesn't know that snakes are bad and scary, but it starts exhibiting all the symptoms and the signs of fear. Like it's elevated, people get elevated, its heart rate is racing. It's afraid of the snake that it's never seen before. So somewhere in the transfer of information, his mom give, gave to him knowledge that makes him be afraid. And we all humans are born with some of those things. We're afraid of startling sounds. We're afraid of the darkness as babies. Uh, we're not happy with things that move too fast. So somehow there is information that's stored in us that's moving across generation that was learned, uh, that wasn't genetically. And uh, I think we're only scraping the surface there and it's mostly biologists who do this, but yeah. uh, that's true. And also to your first note, bonobos are having a lot of sex uh, and they use it to uh, fix a lot of problems. In fact, they're a model for a lot of uh, yeah, behaviors yeah, they in humans. <laughs> they're having a non-monogamous sex all the time. They're having gay sex. They're having uh, sex as a way to solve problems, to fall asleep, to reconcile. So they're really teaching us not just about the brain, but also about social interactions and what's the important things in life. So we can learn a lot from bonobos. I mean, I'm down. <laughs> I think they've got a lot to teach us for sure. Thank you so much. It's been a really wonderful conversation. I appreciate it. I agree with you. We could have done it for many more hours. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. Thank you for listening, everybody. And uh, go out there and follow the Bonobos advice. (laughs) (laughs) Have a wonderful day. Thanks, Suzanne. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.